The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Jason Rose. I'm uh, currently uh, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, Mark Gladwin, my mentor, and I are going to be talking about uh, mentorship in academia. A uh, little background on myself, I recently joined the faculty at University of Pittsburgh. Under Mark's mentorship, I've had several publications, including one in Science Translational Medicine. I've been an inventor on, co-inventor on two patents, and I've obtained an F32 NIH NHLBI grant, and now I'm on a Parker B. Francis Fellowship. Our main goals today are going to provide some training into becoming a su successful mentor and also some expectations for junior faculty and trainees on how to navigate and receive good mentorship. I'm going to be directing a lot of questions today at Mark, talking about uh, his experiences and what he's observed throughout his long and successful career, and also get some of his own philosophy and views on mentorship and academic medicine today. Uh, so I will let Mark give a brief introduction on himself, and then we can get to the questions. Uh, my name is Mark Gladwin. I'm currently the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I'm also director of the Pittsburgh Heart, Lung, Blood, and Vascular Medicine Institute. And I'm also uh, very famous for being Dr. Jason Rose's mentor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So that was a, a great introduction. And then I, I think maybe Mark, why don't you walk us through just a brief background of how you got to where you are now, uh, just to, to frame everything, and then we can talk to about more about mentors, but maybe walk, walk everyone through this. Okay, so, you know, I won't go too far back, but uh, my, my parents were, were social scientists um, in anthropology, and so I was sort of raised in an academic environment, although not academic medicine. Um, but I was the first physician in, in my family, and I really didn't know what it was all about. Um, and I, I entered a six-year medical program at Miami, and then I went to Oregon Health Science University for residency. And at that, that's when I sort of became excited about academic medicine, but mostly about sort of the, the pathway, the, the master clinician, master educator pathway of academic medicine. And I love teaching. Um, I became a chief resident and started to gravitate towards critical care medicine with, with also an interest in infectious diseases. Um, and so ended up choosing uh, to go into a fellowship in pulmonary critical care medicine. But about that time, one of my mentors, Lynn Lorio, who had discovered GNRH while he was an endocrinologist and physician scientist at the NIH, he advised me that uh, because I was interested in leadership, he felt that it was important to really experience science. So he encouraged me to spend some time uh, doing research as part of my fellowship. And so at that point, I'd never held a pipette. I really didn't know what research was all about, so I was one of the late bloomers. But I, I had this idea that uh, the future was molecular biology. And at the time, a lot of people were doing physiology research. So this was in 1995. So I chose a fellowship where I knew the clinical training was excellent, but I could also learn cell and molecular biology. So I did uh, pulmonary training at, at University of Washington, Seattle, but then I went to the National Institutes of Health for critical care training and chose to work 
with uh, my mentor Jim Shellhammer because he was doing very fundamental work in cell and molecular biology. And uh, that was the right decision. I, I became uh, kind of to my surprise, you know, I was very committed to really, uh, you know, understanding the field. But at about a year, a year and a half into my research training, I sort of fell in love with science, with discovery science. Later at the NIH, I started moving more and more into translational uh, biochemistry and vascular biology and became very interested in nitric oxide signaling. Um, and while at the NIH, we discovered how nitrite, the salt, can be converted to nitric oxide and regulate blood flow. I also became very interested in hemolysis and how that damaged blood vessels by inhibiting nitric oxide. And that led me to a passion in both vascular biology and sickle cell pulmonary vascular biology, where, as you know, hemolysis is mm -hmm. a major risk factor for the developing of pulmonary vascular disease. So that's sort of the overview, but based on that, I'm really uh, passionate about being a physician scientist and training physician scientists like you. So, oh, thank there you. We that's, go. A, that's a pretty good overview for a, a long uh, and complex, successful career. So, I think based on the discussion we're having today, is you mentioned a couple mentors, uh, Dr. Shellhammer. How did they influence you, and how did that those relationships with your mentors uh, enable you to be so successful? Well, first of all, this is a great program um, because, as you hear from many people, but it can't be understated that choosing mentors and uh, working with mentors and cultivating mentors and developing new mentors during your career is absolutely critical to success. And um, I've had many mentors during my career, and there's different phases in different parts of your careers where you, you, you need to reach out uh, to new mentors. And so some of my key mentors, again, early on, um, I think Lynn Lorio at Oregon Health Science University was the first to push me or guide me um, towards a career as a physician scientist. Actually, Molly Osborne was at OHSU. She had trained at the NIH, and she was a physician scientist in pulmonary who pushed me to go to the NIH. Um, at, the, at the NIH, Jim Shellhammer was my main lab mentor, and I really picked him because everybody that worked with him published. You know, everybody, if you worked with him for two years, you were going to get a paper in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. I was also somewhat intimidated by him. You know, he knew everything clinically, and he knew everything in the lab. And I liked the fact that he was a strong clinician and a strong scientist. And so I also I felt that I needed a mentor that was going to control or push me a little bit because, mm -hmm. as you know, I can be a little uppity. Yeah. So he he uh, was someone who who really provided very directed hands-on mentorship. As my career developed there, there were other people like Henry Mazur has really emerged as a lifelong mentor. He's the director of critical care medicine there, but Henry has always, even to this day, he'll, he'll promote me for awards or think of me and give me advice on me, someone I can ask for important advice confidentially at all times. Uh, also at the NIH, Alan Schechter, who's a hemoglobin biochemist, um, who he sort of, I, once I started, became interested in hemoglobinopathies and hemoglobin nitric oxide chemistry, he became a major mentor of mine, and, and Alan actually taught me how to ask important questions, how to write, um, I think took my science to the next level, mm -hmm. um, although Jim was always involved as my laboratory-based mentor throughout all those years. Um, 
on coming to the University of Pittsburgh, which was a big transition going from the NIH as a federal government right. scientist mm-hmm. to this world where you've got to worry about clinical operations and competitive NIH grants. And uh, that was a, a, a difficult transition. And I was really mentored as a division chief um, by, by really two people. One was Steve Shapiro, who'd been a division chief before, and he was my chair of medicine. And so he would help me with things as simple as what are the qualifications for promotion in the extramural world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mike Donahoe, who is my clinical uh, associate division chief, he really taught me about hospital systems, clinical compensation, um, as well as really strategic leadership. So, so Mike has been a ma- ma- major mentor for me. But I think this illustrates the importance of finding people at different stages of your careers that can mentor you. Absolutely. Now, for someone in a more, you've obviously found some great mentorship throughout. Uh, for maybe a fellow or junior faculty, what is your advice to identifying and seeking out mentorship? Uh, how, how do you find these great people? How do you identify them? Yeah. So first of all, I think you have to find a mentor that matches your personality. One, one thing I always liked, I think an advantage we have as, as in academic medicine is we can test run our mentors by working with them clinically or working with them on small projects. So you have mm-hmm. this opportunity that you do have to have personalities that match each other. Right. And um, I found that by working with people clinically, I knew, oh, this is someone I can work with, or this is someone I can't work with. And of course, this could be that I know my personality wouldn't necessarily match with them. So, so mm-hmm. you are going to get this opportunity during your research phase to choose a mentor. Um, you may choose a mentor as well based on your particular focused interest in the area of, of medicine, um, although I always think it's better to pick the best mentor that's the most productive and the most successful in mentorship. So have mm-hmm. they mentored other people yeah. to F awards, to K awards, to independence? Um, I talk to their mentees. How is it being in their lab? You know, what's the personality? How does the person mentor? Mm-hmm. Um, will they let you publish negative results? You know, yeah. um, how did they promote your career? And it actually, interestingly, early in your career might be more important, the success of your mentor than the area of science you're in. Um, so, for example, I worked on initially with Jim Shellhammer studying phospholipase A2 biology and airway epithelial cells. I was adding retinoic acid to B's to B cells, looking at P11 protein expression. That has nothing to do with what I do today or what I'm known for. Mm-hmm. If you look at most successful people, their early papers don't reflect what they're doing. But he taught me how to do molecular biology, cell culture, how to think about science, rigor, um, honesty and research. I mean, all these fundamental core lessons he taught me um, that I was able to carry forward into, into my independent work. Mm-hmm. You also have to think about things about the lab of your mentor. You know, do you want to be in a small lab where your mentor is actually doing experiments side by side? Do you want to mm-hmm. be in a big lab where there's a lot of people that can help you? Maybe there's more resources, but you don't get to meet your mentor as much. Yeah. You know, these are important things um, to think about. And so just to summarize, it would be kind of that personality of you and your mentor, uh-huh. the resources and environment that your mentor brings to play and how they fit your personality, mm-hmm. the focus of the mentor's lab and whether that matters to you or not. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, how their success in mentorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think all, all those things are critical, but it's one of the most important decisions you'll make. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Now, do you think if, let's say someone's looking at more of a, so obviously the work we've done together is more kind of basic science, translational science. What about someone who's more focused on maybe clinical outcomes research, or maybe now bioinformatics is very popular. Do you have, is it, there are differences to how you would navigate the mentorship relationship or identifying a mentor in that setting? Yeah, I, I really don't think so. You know, I always tell people that, that you have to become a professional mm -hmm. if you want to make it as a physician scientist. And the example, I like, to, I like sports analogies a little bit, but I think mm -hmm. about the AAA leagues versus yeah. the professional leagues. And I always like to talk about the movie Bull Durham, okay. which I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, well, I, I was at Duke, so of course. <laughs> yeah, so you know that pitcher is pulled up from the AAA and he throws the great fastball, but he can't hit the target. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he's men his mentor um, um, tries to straighten him out. But there's a lot of people that are super talented. I mean, all of most people in academic medicine are very talented. Mm -hmm. And some of them come into their fellowships having published a lot of papers. So it's, right. not, it's not atypical to find people that publish 30 papers and mm -hmm. they're writing chart reviews, case series. Um, and they're sort of stars in the AAA leagues. Mm -hmm. But to get a K, to get an R, to establish a national reputation, you've got to make it in the professional leagues. And I think that requires professional coaches and professional advanced training, which means serious mentors that have resources that are connected that, that know that, as well as advanced training in, in a hard scientific discipline. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing outcomes research, you know, I'd say in the modern era, there's great, you know, if you, if you could develop fundamental knowledge in computation, statistics, big data, analytics, machine learning, mm -hmm. um, all of these kind of things, it's going to really make, bring you to the professional leagues. Likewise, right. in basic science, you know, you have to really learn cell molecular biology or immunology or mass spectrometry or flow cytometry or, you know, rigorous areas of, of methodology and science. And so I think you just have to professionalize. So if you go into outcomes research or clinical trials or big data, you probably want to take serious courses. You might want to get an MPH. You know, mm -hmm. I also think be creative about your training. If you have this opportunity when you do your research phase of your fellowship, especially on T32 training grants, Absolutely. that they'll pay for your training. So you could get a master's in computational science where you focus on machine learning, for example. Mm -hmm. But I would be, you know, professionalize and take that opportunity during your fellowship to get that advanced training. So it really doesn't change. And same thing for, for mentors, you know, people that want to do outcomes research. Here at Pittsburgh, I often suggest they work with one of the faculty of the CHRISMA program in, mm -hmm. in the critical care medicine department with Derek Angus. You know, people like Doug White and Jeremy Kahn, and, you know, they're real, you know, nationally recognized experts and, and mentors in, in, the, 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 in outcomes research. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something interesting about uh, some of these alternative pathways. Um, you, were, you mentioned an MP, MPH, bioinformatics. What is, so in my training, I actually obtained an MBA during my research fellowship, which was quite novel. Uh, what were, were your thoughts when I came to you and we discussed this idea the first time? Well, well, well first, maybe, maybe share with everybody what exactly you did, because it was, I think, a very innovative training pathway. All right. Uh, so during my, I started my pulmonary critical care fellowship here in 2013. Uh, I Obviously, with the T32, a lot of people get uh, different types of advanced training. 
I'd always been interested in biotechnology, entrepreneurship, and I had thought about, at times, getting my Master's of Business Administration degree. So uh, actually, probably the first time I met Mark, even on the interview, we discussed this a little bit, is um, I obtained uh, getting an MBA degree. And so what we developed here at University of Pittsburgh in partnership actually with the Tepper School of Business is a biomedical entrepreneurship pathway um, in the MBA program of, of Tepper over at Carnegie Mellon. And so this program essentially takes uh, physician scientists who are very interested in perhaps one day commercializing an innovation and teaching them uh, an entrepreneurial specialization uh, MBA. And uh, the program actually just launched a couple of years ago, and it's continuing on uh, in this partnership and uh, recruiting new uh, new people all the time. So um, it's been very helpful in my career uh, as far as uh, related to my research. We're working on a carbon monoxide poisoning antidote, but we're also very interested in actually developing it into uh, something that can be used in patients and navigating that whole process it almost takes an MBA to figure out the complexities of it um, from both the uh, fundraising side, the clinical development side, preclinical development side. So it's been a very uh, fruitful pathway for me and I've enjoyed it a lot and I graduated back in May uh, 2017. So that's, that's the program we've developed here. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on, on training like this? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I think it's a great example of how you have this opportunity during this, the protected time on a T32 training grant, which for most fellowships, they have a T32 training grant, which allows you after your clinical ACGME regulated training, you then do, go into this research phase where you're really going to be developing unique skills for a career. Um, and that allows you, typically there's support for get, to get an MPH or a master's in clinical science, or it like you did, an MBA. And I think it's important to think creatively about how that advanced training aligns with your interests and that you're not just doing it for the degree, but you're doing it to gain the skill sets that you really want to advance your career. And when you brought up the idea, it, I, was all, all, I was already sort of interested that, you know, drug development requires spanning this this valley of death from the basic science discovery to you know clinical approval and commercialization and that it was a very hot area you know is especially with the the revolution of molecular biology mm -hmm. that we're living through a lot of these drugs in the biotech biotech space are coming out of universities and that having the skill set to the the entrepreneurial skill sets set could be very helpful I was also impressed that about Someone told me once that half of chairs in medicine, I'm not sure if that number's right, and, mm -hmm. and I certainly don't have one, but, but have MBAs, and, that, and a lot of running a lab. You know, when you run a laboratory, it's sort of like running a small business. You, know, you have Absolutely. to hire and fire people. You have to, you have to engage, promote, and encourage your, your employees working in the lab, and you have to seek funding and manage budgets, but yet we're not formally trained. So... When you brought it up, I thought it was a, a great idea and something I thought about and and promoted. And it seems like it's really working out well for you. Uh, we also, I think the NIH is more receptive to these kind of things, you know, especially for PhD investigators. About 90% of them don't, in the end, get R01 grants. Mm -hmm. Now, people bring this up as a problem, but I don't really think it is. You know, many of them become writer-editors. 
Many of them become administrative leaders in mm -hmm. academic centers. Many of them go into pharma. Many of them, you know, do these alternative pathways. And much like getting a legal degree, mm -hmm. you often don't practice courtroom law, right? You end up uh, finding other areas, uh, professional uh, pathways for your career. So I thought the MBA was a great idea. And in fact, as, as you know, we then stole your ideas and put it into mm -hmm. our T32 renewal and got a great score uh, by incorporating a piece of our T32 training focused on getting an MBA and getting into the drug development space. I think the NIH is very supportive of it because they do want to support alternative career pathways. They want to make sure that everybody that gets on a T32 or that gets a K is successful. Um, and this is just a piece of, of helping uh, you to find your, your area and achieve your success. Absolutely. And it, as I've said and you said, it's been very, very successful for me and it's very helpful in not just in, you know, starting to do some lab management myself, but uh, especially navigating kind of this translational medicine space that we find ourselves in now in, in the entire world in, of healthcare. Yeah, the other thing I'll just mention that I, I don't know if I've ever told you, but people sort of warned me when I started this that you were just going to, you know, take the degree and go to Wall Street. <laughs> um, and, and I used to tease you that, that if you did that, you were going to have to give me an endowed chair in a few years. <laughs> so it was part of the deal. But, but the, the, obviously, you ended up getting a Parker B, and now you've got an extremely competitive score. You're certainly going to get your K. And you've sort of decided that you like the academic space, but that you're going to use your skill set to start companies out of academia, and I could easily see a leadership role in a university helping with commercialization. And being a, both a physician and a scientist, I think will will make you very competitive for that. So clearly, getting this advanced training doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to create a wedge or drive someone out of academia. And I think it's something that NIH should promote more. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so. I want to go back to, you mentioned, again, all these, these great mentors you had and how you sought them out. How has is, how is all the mentorship you've experienced influenced now your philosophy as a mentor? Um, you're my mentor. You've mentored a lot of people in your career. Um, explain to us a little bit about that. So one thing is it's very rewarding, very time-consuming. And the interesting thing is you don't see or realize your success for a long time because it takes people a long time to go through their career. So it is fun to see as I'm getting older, people that you've, you've worked with, mentored a little bit, and then where they end up and, and how they do. And sometimes I'm always impressed that it can be a very brief or limited interaction Mm -hmm. that can have some influence, just like, you know, Lynn Lorio probably never remembered telling me that I should go, you know, do molecular biology. And um, that, I mean, in one meeting, he really influenced my career. Mm -hmm. um, then there's, of course, mentors that have a sustained impact on you, like Jim Shellhammer and Alan Schechter for me, who taught me how to think and really fundamental principles of how to do research and how to problem solve and how to write and how to just think about science. So... But it takes many years, and so you know now, for example, you know some of the people, like Roberto Machado, who I mentored, who's now going to be the new division chief of the University of Indiana. You know, he's obviously an extremely successful physician scientist. He also picked a number of mentors in his life. He was mentored by Serpil Erzurum before me, 
and later Skip Garcia. So he's mm-hmm. selected people along the way that have helped him with different pieces of his career. So, so anyway, so it, it's it's very fulfilling later to see people that are that succeed um, and hope that you've had a little bit of help them a little bit. Um, some of the basic strategies that I focus on are, are one is you know it's very tough to mentor a physician scientist because you have a very short timeline. Mm-hmm. You know, you really have two years and you've got to write a K. Right. And I, and as you know, I strongly encourage people to write Ks. That the K award. Even if you're not positive you want to get an R01. In fact, only 40% of people with Ks end up getting an R01. Mm-hmm. But if you look at leaders in academic medicine, most of them had a K. And the reason is, is that K buys you time to be productive and to develop a career. Mm-hmm. So you have that grinding timeline of two to three years after your ACGME training. And then if you get a K, you now have five years with 70% protected time. It's a portable grant it can really allow you to build unique skills that will promote your career. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so getting that K is vital, but to get that K, you need to publish one or two papers with your mentor. You have to develop an area of independent research. Um, so what I do, my strategy is I like to sort of sit on people for their first two years and with very directed goals. Like mm-hmm. You're gonna get one paper or two papers and a review article. And people argue about review articles, but it's a little bit, as you know, of my process. I make sure everybody gets a review article mm-hmm. and everybody gets one to two papers. And we also have a big collaborative lab. So we tend, as you know, to have papers that you can get your name on multiple papers as mm-hmm. well. I mean, you have to contribute to the paper. But because we're a bigger lab and we're very collaborative, there's opportunities to further um, embellish your work. Right. So I think that um, you know my goal is very focused one or two papers, a review article, write an F32, write a K. And then I, I start to let loose a little bit. And typically mm-hmm. for two years of the K, I still am very involved as I am with you. But then I get this phase where I start to back off. And that's important for someone's development. It's fascinating, you know, the very aggressive mentees mm-hmm. um, will start to push away from you, that they're starting to feel that you're you're over-involved or you're not giving them enough independence or you're micromanaging them um and that and then you know that you're doing it's it's and i think that's a good thing there's a natural almost divorce that happens with a mentor and mentee Mm -hmm. especially if they have similar personalities you know right and but you really want to be separating after about two years and you can still collaborate on things and but there is this move towards independence and sometimes i've found in that transition that move to independence the mentee feels neglected a little bit because mm. maybe they've been the focus of this intensive, you know, attention um, that maybe they don't even enjoy while they're getting it. <laughs> but then when you move away, they feel abandoned. So there, there's all these fascinating elements to this. But ultimately, that's what I try to do is make a commitment to that one to two papers, a review article, the K, and then people need to because eventually you do have to make it on your own. You've got to come up with your own ideas, your own space, your own. Right. So there is this additional transition that has to occur. Now you're not going to be totally alone. You're going to be developing new mentors in that period. You know, right. it's an evolution. It's not. You're not going to suddenly jump to another mentor. But you may have a side project with another mentor. Mm-hmm. You may become very involved with other collaborators and mentors. So, and that sort of happens. And that's one way to become independent as well. You're never truly independent in this business. Right. But you just, you know, on paper you're independent from me. Mm-hmm. But now you're 
you have other mentors that you have, you know, other dependencies on. Because again, we all are always being mentored by somebody. Absolutely. Now, t- touching on that point, the neglected mentee as they transition to yeah. independence, uh, any any pointers for for them navigating that relationship? Obviously, you became independent from your original mentors. Like, how do how do you do that from the mentee side? Yeah. Well, well, one thing is you have to. It's not a you know everybody said these are common things people say, but they're so true. It is not a one way street. You don't have this benevolent mentor that's thinking about you all the time and watching out for your every step. As you know, especially working with me, because I'm a little bit busy, I get <laughs> distracted. You have to aggressively manage your mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, if you're not, if you're getting nervous or uncomfortable, you haven't met them enough. You need to schedule meetings. Mm-hmm. When you meet with them, you should come with an agenda. You know, you should be. You know, Jim Shellhammer, he loves science and loves it, mm-hmm. and he would be just happy to see data. He would look at my data every day, but he he was in no rush being at the NIH to publish that JVC paper. So I would mm-hmm. say, I'd get nervous, and in eight months I was like, well, Jim, what's what's the paper? And i just start writing the paper. Mm-hmm. And and then I'd say, well, what's after this part of the paper? Because mm-hmm. I'd never done one before, you know, and he'd say, oh, well, you need to do, you know, RNA Half-Life or whatever I would do. And So I would kind of push him to what's next, what's next. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to, to do the same thing, especially if your mentor's very busy, you have to make sure you're meeting with them enough. You have to make sure you're getting enough help. And you find co- co-mentors like, you know, well, uh, one of the fellows in the lab right now, you know, it's key that she has someone that's in the lab every day doing experiments in mm-hmm. addition to meeting regularly with me. So I think you need to get that as well. Right, right. Yeah. And I've, I've definitely, uh, you know, as you said, you're busy. But in, in my experience, uh, I definitely also have co-mentors that help me a lot in lab too. Um, in the day-to-day questions that come up as you're performing a lot of experiments. And that's been critical. And then, as you said, being organized, I think, in meetings has been been helpful, coming in with a plan. Um, all right. Well, so I, I think, you know, we, we've gone through your philosophy on mentorship, and you've given us uh, examples of some uh, mentees you've, you've worked with that have done, done fantastic. Um, going to maybe the more difficult side of things, um, what what do you think the barriers are to right now um, for a young physician scientist, someone who's maybe in their finishing their fellowship up, not sure they want to do they want to do academic medicine or they you know there's always the pull to private practice etc. What what are the barriers of entry to phys- being a physician scientist? Well, there's a push and a pull. The pull is you could make more money early. You, I think being a physician is so rewarding all the time. People, you know, patients love you and um, appreciate you. And everybody's respectful and it's not an intrinsically critical job, right? You're not being criticized for your actions all the time. I think it's very rewarding and well-paying, um, especially in certain specialties. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas academics, it's extremely challenging because you're learning a new thing. It's extremely competitive. You know, every grant has a pay line, and it, it, you know it's really capitalism. You know, the NIH I think is well designed that that um, it's very hard to get a grant because you're competing for that grant. Um, and then it's intrinsically critical. Every article you read is criticized. Every grant you read is criticized. 
So, you know, one question is, why do we do this? And I think because it's the ultimate challenge. You know, one of my other mentors, Chuck Natanson at the NIH, I asked him once, he was editing a paper that had been rejected multiple times, and he was really perfecting the arguments in the paper based mm -hmm. on the last round of peer review comments. And I said to him, how do you do this? Don't you get exhausted and fatigued? And he said, oh, I'm so lucky to get these peer-reviewed comments. I get the best minds criticizing my work, so it allows me to, to respond, to do additional analyses, to strengthen the work. And then he said to me something like, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing something he said, something like, you know, that, you know, why do people climb Mount Everest, you know? There's mm -hmm. no oxygen up there. There's, the view's pretty nice, but you can get a similar view with, you know, you do it just because of the challenge. So I do, and the point was, if Everest wasn't hard to climb, nobody would climb it. And so mm -hmm. I do think the challenge in of itself, um, it, it makes you better and stronger and, and, and makes you do more novel, exciting, you know, things, drives you towards innovative discoveries. So, so, um, but those are sort of the challenges that people face. And the critical thing is to get independent funding and mm -hmm. to produce. I mean, I always say productivity, right? right? Productivity is papers, presentations, and grants. And the grants are a mean to an end. They protect your time, mm -hmm. and they allow you, they give you resources to do more science. So I think for someone at your, your stage, the K is vital because you have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, and then trying to put yourself in, in an environment with good resources, intellectual resources, material resources, um, creativity. Right. Right? So it's all about, you know, putting yourself in that resource-rich environment, your mentor's ability, his resources or her resources, the grant resources, you know, the intellectual, clinical and translational resources. So um, I think that's, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's most vital. And, and, you know, I do know a lot of people that have left academics, and they have a lot of challenges too, you know. It's, it's hard work in right. the modern era hard, hard work to be a full-time clinician. You're, you're being paid for work RVUs, by and large, right? or panel sizes, or in the future. It's, and, and ultimately, if you're paid a lot, you have to do a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very hard, hard work. And I've always appreciated the, the flexitivity of academia, even mm -hmm. in a job like mine where I do a lot of administrative work um, and still run a big lab. I still have a lot of creativity. I, you know, every... Wednesday morning, I my lab meeting, you know, we started at 9 because I, I work at home that morning. Right. And I love that morning having my first meeting at 9. Um, I wake up early, but I get to see the kids leave and hang mm -hmm. out a little bit. And uh, before I took the chair of medicine job, I used to have more mornings like that that were early. You Likewise, if you have young kids, you can schedule your day to end at 4, go home, be with the children, and then work in the evening when, after they go to bed. Mm-hmm. Now, and you can't do that in clinical medicine. You have to follow the tempo of the clinical work in your space. Yeah. So I do think there's really creativity, and, and you can travel, see the world. You know, we speak a common language internationally of science. So mm -hmm. it is great. You go to Italy, and there's a scientist you can collaborate with. So there, I mean, I think that's the same thing for medicine, but not as much. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think the academic world is very enriching, and, and I think a lot of people that have gone into pure private practice certainly do miss it. Mm -hmm. Although I think what they do and what we do clinically is, is, is equally valuable. Absolutely. Well, I think that we've, we've covered a lot of topics for this uh, half-hour podcast. 
I want to thank the listeners and hope they found this helpful uh, to them in uh, navigating both from the mentee side and the mentor side of a, a mentoring relationship in uh, academic medicine. Uh, I'll, I'll let Mark uh, kind of close out if there's any closing comments you have, and then we can sign off. Yeah, thanks, Jason, so much for doing this, and I really appreciate the ATS for developing this content. I think it's so important for, for all of us. Um, I think that being a mentor is one of the most fulfilling things uh, that someone can do in academic medicine. Uh, the, the one thing I didn't bring up that's important as well is it's very um, that the relationships that you develop with your mentees and the stimulation that you receive from the creative ideas of your mentees um, are also vital for a sustained successful career in science. You know, one of the remarkable, unique, I think special, you know, aspects of being in academic medicine is you get to work with very bright young people that are stimulating you, challenging you, bringing new ideas to the table. And that uh, keeps you young and keeps your science fresh. So I think it's also clearly a two-way street. So I appreciate Jason, you're pushing me and bringing new new things <laughs> and new you. ideas to the table. So, all right, thanks. Well, thank you.